episode number 64, Michael Whitfield. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and finally, my last interview from my trip to Vancouver at the beginning of 2019, this time with lighting designer Michael Whitfield. Michael and I spoke at his home on Salt Spring Island after I had a terrific conversation with his partner, Susan Benson, who you heard on episode number 56 of the Tuttle Block. We cover his early days training at the University of Victoria, initially in science, and his extensive career as the head of lighting design at the Stratford Festival, after Gil Wexler in the 1970s, and at the Canadian Opera Company. We also talk about the evolution of lighting technology at the festival, and and links to that mostly bygone tech is available in the show notes. Before we get to that, I want to wax nostalgic for just a moment. Um, 85 episodes in. This is episode number 85, including all the extra special stuff, the bellows and the title block live and the the public events. And I received a a terrific and a very kind email from designer Sean Kerwin, who we've interviewed on the show uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, and she's one of the many university professors and instructors who are rewriting, uh, rewriting, rewriting huh, their course descriptions in light of the changing landscape of post-secondary education. Uh, and she praised our efforts here on the show to collect and share the history of design in Canada uh, because she can use these to help her students understand the giants upon whose shoulders they stand. Now, I am, well, just thrilled to be able to build such a resource for Canadian theatre trainees and and make a habit of actively remembering our ephemeral past. I want to hear from you about where I go next. Thanks to the efforts of Connor Moore, Michelle Cutler, and Michelle Ramsey most recently, our Title Block Live episodes have offered a more contemporary look at the state of theatre design uh, in the north of Turtle Island. Uh, And now I'm not sure who to talk to next. Uh, I, I don't talk about my own journey here on the show much, but if, you, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I recently graduated from medical school, and I'm now a resident family physician in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, as I pursue an even busier educational schedule here, I need to hear help to decide where the show goes next. Now, I've got some good ideas, given the conversations we've organized over the past few months on the YouTube Live, uh, but please, let me, let me know who I, I'm missing especially from regions outside the GTA and in Ontario. Who in your region is considered the elder statesperson? Who is the mid-career maverick who's creating terrific art, or at least was before we stopped everything a few months ago? Let us know, either through the email at thetitleblock at gmail.com, or through a DM on Twitter at thetitleblockca, or on our Facebook page. I'm also going to turn away a spell from the overwhelmingly older white past of Canadian theatre design and speak with some of the terrific BIPOC artists that have been featured on some of our panels. I need to talk to more sound and image designers as well and understand their process. And I need to talk to those in the first decade of their career to see the world of theatre from their point of view. It will be challenging uh, for me over the next coming months and, you know, a couple years, but I need to hear from you as I get further away from the business in my own career, what, 10 years ago. Now, I hope that you're continuing to weather these tough times as the theaters are shut and we're all in stasis waiting to, uh, to make art for a live audience. Please, if you can, consider giving to the Actors Fund of Canada at afchelps.org.
Also, go to our YouTube channel for the Title Block, and if you missed out, listen and watch to the terrific panels we've had on the Title Block Live. We are bringing you more in the future with the help of the ADC to try to address a, a greater diversity of voices and to talk more about cutting-edge solutions to live theater as we try to mold a different experience in these COVID times. Once again, I will not be charging the wonderful supporters at patreon.com will be all pause, but I thank you all for your past and future support. And don't forget to visit thetitleblock.com to see the show notes for a deeper dive about the companies and the people we talk about on the show, especially this one. There's several articles from the 1970s in the New York Times and, and McLean's that talk about some of the people that are, are no longer with us or that shaped theater uh, so long ago. Now, here's my interview with lighting designer Michael Whitfield. Michael Whitfield is a lighting designer based right now out of uh, out of Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, he ha- was a resident lighting designer at Stratford from 1980 to 2007, which is a remarkable stretch of time, but also worked across the country in the U.S. and Europe and the opera uh, and uh, other sort of work outside of Stratford. Uh, and he has been kind enough to have me join him in his home here in Vict- in uh, on Salt Spring Island. Um, where he lives today with uh, Susan Benson. Uh, Michael, welcome to the title block. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, my God. Those intros drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. So how did you uh, find your way to theater? You told me that you were you were a born and bred sort of scientist before yeah. you started theater. First of all, I'm curious about what you were, what kind of science you were doing, and uh, and how you got into that. And then we'll talk about transitioning to theater. How's that okay, I, I actually I was not a sort of a specialist science uh, person at that point. I, I was sort of leaning probably toward physics, chemistry, um, uh, but in fact, it was just the sort of the whole concept of, I think, the logic of science that uh, appealed to me in a sense. Um, and I'd always tried to be a good student and, you know, do my homework and so on and so on. And science was sort of my, my featured interest. Now, it's not to say that I didn't enjoy literature and this kind of thing. But um, what happened is when I got to the University of Victoria, uh, first year I took the sort of the required basic sciences, sort of preliminary launching pad type courses. But in my second year, there was supposed to be an art selective and uh, I was referred, my mother was actually working in the English department on the campus, and she said, oh, there's a professor that they've hired who's trained at RADA and uh, is now teaching English and so on, but he's been offered a brand new course in theater as an introduction to theater, as an arts course, okay, that might interest you. And I sort of thought, oh, well, I've never had any interest up to that point in theater. Uh, And so I took the course, and literally had a sort of a turnabout year. And I guess it was the fact that there was something in me that was uh, artistic struggling to get out sort of thing or from underneath (laughs) the science because I found that uh, I really enjoyed what turned out to be actually a rather chaotic course because this was the first ever, so it was kind of like finding its, its level even as we were taking the course. And, I mean, you'd, you'd come in to do uh, what was going to be, a, say, a, a day of study in Greek theater, and suddenly you had to paint the floor because the floor hadn't been painted and the show had happened that night and so on. So it was that kind of thing. And I think that appealed to me, that it was a kind of a seat-of-your-pants occupation 
And uh, I sort of thought, well, I, I can kind of work this thing through. I can plan this. And I think it's back to, again, that there was a sort of a scientific <coughs> basis, uh, i.e. a sort of an orderliness that I, I saw even in the, what would you call it, the chaos of trying to get a show on. I said to myself, well, I think I can organize that. And in fact, one of the first things I did was in the summer stage manage a show. Now, I'd never stage managed anything in my life. But uh, that aspect of it, again, you know, calling the cues on time and so on. And I thought, and I actually went to, this is the kind of funny side, I went to a, um, a sort of a counselor fellow and said, I think I'd like to change courses and, uh, or change my focus. And, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like to study theater. And his first reaction was, well, do your parents approve? And I thought, well, my parents were very generous. They, they said, you do what you want. Uh, I think I worried this man. He thought, you know, how could you go from science to theater? And so as the department uh, or as the program and finally the department began to grow, I kind of grew with it. And I joke that I think it's because coming from a science background, I could plug two lamps together and not blow something up that I sort of fell into lighting. And it was a strange combination of indeed science uh, because it's you're looking at sort of uh, behavior of light, optics, color, all this kind of thing uh, with the idea of being artistic and in a sense dressing the stage, you know, what would you call it, reinforcing the play and so on. Um, so I, I was lucky because very many people nowadays would not have an opportunity to light more than maybe one or two shows in a year. I was lighting like four shows a year at one stage. And so I got an awful lot of practice. And we had a summer theater program at that point, which was great. It was um, high school students from all over the province were auditioned to come to be a small company for, I think it was a period of about six weeks. And they'd put on a play. And I was made sort of technical director, lighting designer, teacher, all that kind of thing. And so it all worked its way through to a point where uh, having had, um, I think it was actually five years of undergraduate because of having changed courses, uh, I emerged with what is in, what was in fact in those days just a BA degree, but in theater. And then I had the uh, the luckiness, the lucky opportunity that one of the chaps who came to, to actually direct at the university was a British director, and he had liked the work he'd seen me do, and he said, well, uh, I'm currently artistic director of the Bournemouth Theatre Company. Would you like to come over and be an electrician or perhaps a designer? And so I thought, okay, my mother was English. Uh, I should be able to get you know the permit to work. But, oh, boy, that was when it was take a number in Britain. And I investigated, and it turned out I was number, you know, 4 million point two or something. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go to Britain anyway. And I actually went to Britain uh, in the spring of 1968, and using family connections and also friends who were over there, uh, I literally I lived in and out of London for five weeks, uh, for sorry five five months, and um, I saw every show I could possibly see, national theatre, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I always tell students now is. Looking at, looking around you and seeing who you're working with and your fellow students and, say, your teachers and stuff, never sort of put anybody down or think, I'd never see that person ever again because it's 
of curious sort of big family, this theater business. And I never dreamed as I was sitting there watching, say, a show at the National, that I would one day be actually working with someone like Richard Pilbara, who was lighting the show, or working with Derek Goldby, who was the director of the show, that kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, thinking back on it, I was just very lucky. I had a lot of sort of lucky breaks at that point. Um, I came back, and I guess I had one of those miracle offers because a professor from Victoria had gone to Villanova University, small department, only a graduate department, about 25, 30 students. And I got a phone call. Uh, Would you like to come to Villanova and get your master's degree? Because we really need someone like you who can build sets and light shows. So I actually got two years as a master's program, free of charge and paid for, because I was an assistant, and came up with yet more experience in lighting, uh, lit sort of, again, four or five shows a season, and, and got a master's degree out of it sort of thing. Um, Can I just yeah. stop you there for a yeah. second? I mean, as someone who was in London in 1968 and watched, five, like, just watched um, show after show there, Yeah, uh, I'm curious because I can imagine a continuity of design uh, with sets and costumes um, because the basic nature of what we see as an audience member really hasn't changed. I mean, sometimes structures get more three-dimensional or maybe because of metal work or some sort of technology, they're able to fly things in a way that we couldn't or that wasn't thought of or was maybe a, was, was not, was it was was done in a different way or problems that were solved in a different way back then. But really, you know, flats and props and sets and costumes I can see the continuity from post-World War II to the present day. But lighting, because it's so technologically heavy, because it was so reliant on, um, I mean, the control systems alone were so different. Um, What do you remember about the quality of light and design that was being done during that time? We see photographs, and the reason I'm asking this is because you see see, photographs of that time were more, were maybe not concerned about the lighting look. They were concerned about getting enough exposure to get the film stock, to get to see the costumes and the props and the actor and everything else. And so the quality of light is not something that we can remember. No, no. Well, there's an interesting sidebar on that. In actual fact, I think in many of the production shots you see, so-called production shots you see, or certainly publicity shots you see from that period. It was just everything in the theater at full. And here we go. And only in cases where, say, a theater company had somebody who was really good with photography could they even hope to get something that was close to what the show looked like. Um, And interesting about the sets and so on, uh, there certainly was a sort of a standard uh, of here we go, it's going to be a fairly conventional use of the typical elements of set, you know, the the backdrop, the flats, and, and so forth and so on. I think um, the... Excuse me. <coughs> oh, dear. Uh, I think that the uh, theater that I saw at the National Theater, uh, which was in the Old Vic Theater, uh, in the Old Vic Theater, uh, was probably of a more adventurous standard. And... And even the, the few operas I saw, um, I saw actually a Svoboda 
production, I think it was of Don Giovanni, which one could hardly see. It was so dark. Uh, a lot of sort of flown goods and stuff. But the the National was doing some very interesting work, both with sets, uh, but also with lights. Um, and that was where uh, Pilbro, who was really one of the sort of the leaders of that, that and uh, it was in Ornbo, I think was the other one, um, they were trying to use light in a much more kind of creative way than purely let's get the illumination on the stage sort of thing. And um, because Strand Electric was trying to develop a more sophisticated control, as was happening in the States to a certain extent, although not as much because Broadway was sort of locking off a lot of the traditional, you know, uh, <clears throat> what would you call them, the... Uh, um, the big the resistance, the resistance dimmer boards, yeah, the, wall the, the, sized, yeah, yeah, with panels. with five guys all struggling, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, um, so that the British actually had a bit of an edge because um, certainly that that uh, multiple channel and preset and so forth uh, system was becoming much more popular and common in Britain, um, and I think that that was probably, as I say, where both the lighting technology, because people like Pilbro were sort of propelling the ideas forward to say, can't we make this, can't we make that? And Strand was was actually beginning to produce things. Um, but also just the sort of the, the creativity level uh, was far greater than it perhaps had been because you, you, you had only so many limited units. And in fact, I mean, I remember the old McPherson Playhouse in Victoria um, when it was first sort of equipped as a kind of a, a, a regional, um, you'd call it like a rep house or something, it was a very much a traditional, older British installation where you had uh, circuits that were, you know, red, green, blue, red, green, blue floodlights, and then every now and again an individual circuit for a spotlight. And it, so it was all kind of general lighting, whereas, as I say, watching what were they doing at... Um, the national there was a lot more creatively and also i mean working with uh i mean i saw the the original rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead uh designed by desmond healy again who do, who would I ever have thought that i would be working with desmond healy but uh lighting what he was asking the director the lighting director to do was a totally different thing than what the sort of traditional box set required so there was sort of there indeed was the beginnings of uh, a, a sort of a technical and also design revolution, and and let's face it, I mean, the lighting designer per se is a pretty new invention, um, you know, both in America and Britain. Uh, it it used to be that you you lit shows by having the stage manager, the director, and an electrician. Uh, sit down with what limited equipment was available and, okay, what does Q1 look like and so forth. Uh, and uh, just a, this is a little sidebar. Uh, interesting, I worked with um, Nathaniel Merrill uh, at one point. He was a resident director at the Metropolitan Opera. His brother was Robert Merrill, the famous singer. And when I led a production for him at the... Um, the opera school in Toronto, the University of Toronto Opera School, uh, one of the things he kept doing as we'd finish a scene and move on to the next, he'd say, okay, show me anything from the previous scene or scenes 
uh, on this new set before we go in and be going, what are we doing? And it was because this process of lighting in the conventional sense of the, the old way was a sort of um, an accumulating process, not a planned process. There was no overview. And so what he came from was the school of the Metropolitan Opera, the Old Met, where you sat down with the electrician and the stage manager and the director, and you said, okay, this is the first scene, here we go. And lights were focused because there wasn't necessarily much more than a sort of simple cover rig for that scene. And then you went to the next scene and lights were focused and so forth. And the problem is, as he described it, and it was, well, actually it was um, another a Metropolitan Opera designer with whom I worked at one point in a show in Toronto uh, who said that you'd get to sort of the middle of Act 3 and the electrician would turn and say, sorry, mister, there's no more lights. And so you had to go back and scavenge. So what, what Nat Merrill was doing was trying to pre-scavenge. In other words, don't use a special for that steeple. The, the, the Act 1 tree special will light that. And so the, the process was, was really not exactly chaotic, but as I say, it was not structured the way we think now of designing. You take a, an overview and you create the whole thing sort of in your mind, on paper, et cetera, and then you go in and you work on the show. Um, and I think that from what I heard, it was to everybody's delight when Gil Wexler took over at the Met, and I think it was 1978-ish, uh, because there was a designer who actually planned. And so the, 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 the directors were delighted because, oh my gosh, you know, we actually got through the opera <laughs> with light without having to go back and scavenge or sort of do a kind of an improvised final scene. Um, how did I get onto all of that? I can't remember. But. Uh, I, I'm oh well, British, the British light. Yes, British, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, before we go there, though, that's it's good to think. I had never considered this before. I mean, Gene um, Rosenthal, which I think we consider the first, at least North America, the first lighting designer. Yeah, right? she, like she, yeah, she, she was, certainly made made the first sort of impact as yeah. an individual. Yeah, and this is in the 1950s, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and her student was Theron Musser, right? Right, yes. Um, and uh, first of all, both women, which I think is good to remind people yes. about. Yes, oh, exactly. Uh, and also the fact that that's, that's I mean, I not Jean, but but I remember watching or, or flipping through theater crafts in the 1980s and still seeing Theron Musser's work. Yes, yeah. And yeah. top of her game. And uh, the fact that, I'd pick up Richard Pilbrow's book, Stage Lighting, which was like the book to start yes, with. Yes, yes. And it was as if lighting always existed. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had all these lights that were back from the nineteen late 60s and early 70s and all our stock, but it was like, of course it's always been this way. But the fact that it only really took, like, design, like lighting as a design practice, not just a direction practice, was as recent in some major houses as the 70s, late 70s, yeah. or mid-70s. Is remarkable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and you see, interestingly, going into Stratford, um, when the Stratford Festival, first of all, in the tent in 1953 through to, I think, 56 was the building, uh, the lighting was very, very simple. It was just, let, let's get some light on the stage. And you could vary intensities to a certain extent to get sort of day, night, this kind of thing. But um, again, it, it wasn't until, it, going into the festival theater, it wasn't until Gill arrived 
um, and this was the early 70s, that they actually opened up the ceiling and created additional slots for lighting positions. So it had originally been uh, the it, we it, they were they were called by colors. The orange row was the furthest out, the farthest ring from the from the stage, and then there was the red row that was sort of closest to the stage, and below it, on the sort of the canopy, was another called the blue row, and that was all that was there. So you had alternatively either very steep light or gosh help us it was actually big 12 inch 1k fresnels on the outer ring and and there is a there is an a probably apocryphal story actually uh to give you an idea of 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 how sophisticated things were and i think i actually i inherited at the patterson theater what was then called the third stage the lighting console that was actually installed in the probably late 50s and it was, I think, something like a 26 or 30 channel board. Um, and it was, as I say, hooked up to lights that were very general in their sort of quality. <coughs> and uh, the story is that um, the guys were working from backstage in those days, running the board. And uh, they got halfway through something like As You Like It. Um, and... Uh, they or, or part of the way through, uh, as you like it, in the first sort of half or something, and suddenly one of them looked at the the sheets they were working from. They said, "Which show are we doing?" And he said, so "As you like it." Oh, we've been setting the Othello light cues. And, oh my God! And they figured they they'd be they'd be creamed by the director. So they figured, well, let's just go out on the stage at the break, and take what's coming to us. Yeah. And the story is that the director met them on the stage and said, I don't know what you boys did with the first half of that show. It looked so much better than it's ever looked. So you're not looking at very sophisticated, you know, focused lighting. And and you're right that, I mean, the and, and in fact, if you read, I think it's Joe Melziner's book, uh, and he had, I think it was Klegel, invent... Uh, a, or not invent, but but manufacture a new kind of lens for uh, a spotlight. So he had a soft edge instead of a hard edge, and and there's a case where the, the the designer of the set was participating in the lighting process. Um, so as I say, it was usually stage manager, director, electrician, but you could add the designer to try to get the balance on the design side. Um, but no, the idea that that somebody actually took charge of all of that was really in the sort of the probably early 50s. And and the systems, I mean, they certainly Broadway hung on to those old uh, piano boards and so forth for the longest time. And I think it was, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the, 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 the play. It was the musical, the chorus line. Chorus line That's was right. the first use of an electronic board. That's right. And and you realize, my God, what they were dealing with up to that point. And mind you, you see, Jean Rosenthal remarks in her book, I think, that that the guys were amazing because they learned the show off the cue sheets, and then they actually felt the show. And this is an interesting aspect of what you don't get with the contemporary boards, that the feel is gone. I always say that the, the worst thing in the world is a cue for a candle lighting sequence. Yeah. Because if, if something goes wrong, the operator, unless they're running that particular sequence manually, 
is at a loss because you've got to back up or do something. Uh, and I, I've, I mean, I've lit a lot of shows in my youth, as it were, with you know manual board operators, and some of them were brilliant at feeling a show. Uh, and, of course, you had fewer cues. I mean, okay, an indication, again, when I first worked at Stratford, um, 30, 35 cues, that was a big show. And, I mean, now we're like 235 cues. <laughs> Different world. In a small venue. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's terrific. I love that tangent. So let's go back to your first hire. So you get this, you do this two years of grad work. Uh, yes. And your... Um, your next year break was coming to Stratford to assist. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, after Villanova, was that I actually got a job teaching for a year at University of Windsor, and uh, it was there that that Sue and I sort of got back together because we had met each other in Victoria, and um, she got a job at the University of Illinois campus at Champaign Urbana, and actually, what is contradictory is that. Uh, my interests at that point were obviously lighting design, but Barnard Hewitt, who was one of the top theater history scholars of American theater history, was the chair of that department. And I thought, well, you know, the worst I could do would be to, to launch into a PhD with the, the actual theater history being the sort of the written part, but on the side, an opportunity to do lots of lighting. And so... I went down, joined Sue, uh, and we. I was there for three years. He was there for four. Um, and I did, uh, actually, ironically, first of all, being hired as a teaching assistant to teach lighting, um, I was having a good time with research on a thesis project. And I had opportunities, once again, to light a variety of shows, sometimes you know musicals and so on and so forth, and also studio-type and main stage and so on. Uh, and then it was 1974 spring that through actually a connection that Sue had, uh, I was introduced to the idea of going to Stratford as an assistant to Gill. Now, interestingly, at Stratford, previous to my arrival, to the best of my knowledge, they had been hiring people who were willing and able but not necessarily committed lighting people. And so when I showed up, I think Gil was quite delighted because I actually could spoke his language. And um, we had uh, a first season where I did all the sort of the paperwork and so forth and so on, kept track of things. And then in what looking back was a totally freaky but terrifying experience, uh, I got a phone call uh, at, in the February of the the, the sort of the, the year following my first season at Stratford, from the producer saying, Gil has just been hospitalized with appendicitis. Uh, <clears throat> Robin Phillips is directing Two Gentlemen of Verona and Comedy of Errors uh, to play at the Avon Theater for the season, but to previous to that, go on tour. Can you come up? Gil has done the light plot, hasn't focused it, None of the cues have been written. Can you come up and do the sort of the bridge work to get us to the point where when Gil, after a couple of weeks of recovery, because in those days it was serious operation, yeah. uh, can come back and kind of take over? And I I mean, it's like that, that story about the actor going blank on stage and going, why am I wearing this costume? Who am I? Who are all these people? 
I go up there. I hadn't had the time to even reread the plays. And uh, I, knowing Gil's sort of approach to the show, uh, I focused the show, focused the, the set, uh, the, the lights for the set. Um, I sat down with Robin, and Robin, as it turns out, was incredibly good as a lighting, in a sense, designer. He visualized everything. So he sort of talked me through, and I you know, translated into the rig, and we lit the two shows. And and Gil came back after about the two weeks, looked at what I'd done, and said, oh, my goodness. Uh, not you know exactly what he had done, but we, we kind of bridged into that. So I was actually the first Canadian to light a show for Robin Phillips right. <laughs> indirectly. Um, but that was that that transition from um, working at the sort of the academic level uh, with theater and also, uh, okay, backtracking a moment, uh, in 1974 fall, uh, through connections from originally UVic, one of the professors had become the head of the um, drama center at University of Toronto. Uh, I was hired to be the sort of the technical coordinator for Hart House Theatre and lighting also the shows for the season of the Hart House Theatre done by the drama program. And so that was still sort of a, a foot in academe. And in 1978, uh, I was hired on by the um, York University Theatre Program and spent four years there. But but in fact, that, that 1974, starting off with Gill, and the three successive years, Robin gave me a couple of shows to light in that period. And then when Gill was offered the position of lighting director for the Metropolitan Opera, uh, I, I was, in a sense, for a couple of years, sort of uh, kind of de facto resident designer. But in fact, in 1980, the season... I think I lit twelve productions, all the two the two main stages, six on each. So that was I was sort of there. That was it, and uh, rather rapidly, commercial work in a sense, professional work, overtook the teaching. So in '82, I left the uh, York University program, but I, I also, I mean, this is all all the things we're lucky that by working at um, Harthouse Theatre. I was, in a sense, right alongside the opera school, literally, physically. I mean, yeah. there it was, right there. And uh, I've forgotten exactly how I got introduced to the opera school, but they learned that I was at Harthouse Theatre and lighting shows. Can you spare some time to come up with us? And so I began lighting the student opera productions. And that was great because that was where I was introduced to the sort of the uh, the bigger picture, literally, scale-wise, of lighting opera and the conventions and so forth and so on. So I emerged sort of at the end of um, roughly 1982 with a fair amount of opera and a lot of theater under my belt. And as I say, then launched into commercial, I mean, when I say commercial, professional career as a lighting designer. And Stratford was home for a total of 35 years, I guess it was. And and beyond that, uh, it was that old business of connections. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, just some cleanup kind of history yes. questions. Um, Robin Phillips, um, where did he? I don't know where he came from before Stratford. Was he? He, I he, was, he, was, he was, was Canadian. Was no, 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 no. He was British. Oh, he, he was, was British. British. He was British. God. And he had. I didn't know that. He had 
uh, oh golly, I just very recently was looking at notes about him. But um, he had quite a diverse career in Britain, both as a performer and as a, a, a an artistic director uh, and um, director. And he he was um, sort of what would you call it a real shot in the arm for Stratford because they had been up to that point. Actually, I mean, it began with obviously British because it was Tyrone Guthrie and Michael Langham and people like that. But um, things had sort of maybe settled down to a, a kind of a comfortable level. It's a funny thing of sort of settling in. And the the place really needed a bit of sort of a fresh view, fresh outlook. And he had the double advantage of not only um, a very good instinct for that stage, but also connections that brought in leading players from Britain, uh, which actually, I mean, it had always been, Stratford had always been a very international company in a sense because many of the performers were people who'd come over from Britain, Dougie Rain and uh, Douglas uh, Campbell, rather, and people like that. And um, Robin sort of, uh, what would you call it, not reinvented, but reestablished the internationality of the company and um, by bringing in, again, other directors, other designers and so on, uh, from abroad uh, gave a tremendous sort of influx of energy and also uh, benefit because when somebody, say, as a, a junior actor is on stage with Maggie Smith and Maggie was the kind of person who would actually s- literally help people, you know, com- uh, comment on their performance and, and sort of give them pointers and things like that so that the company had a huge uh, uplift from that introduction of of people from a, from abroad, and also um, you know sort of well known figures, uh, which meant that you were bridging between the sort of the world of the cinema and um, to some extent television and the theater from the point of view of attracting audiences because somebody would have seen seen somebody on the television or the or the movies and oh yes okay let's see them at Stratford. Uh, it's uh, this has been a great experience, not only here today, talking to you and Susan, but also uh, the whole title block. Because I, I had a conversation with Martha Mann, who uh, it, uh, she started her theater career at U of T, right? And yes. working with the Upper Canada Playhouse, Upper Canada Players, and uh, or the uh, sorry, the alumni, um, and. And worked in Toronto and was part of kind of kind of the homegrown Canadian theater scene that yes. came out of the Dominion uh, Theater Festival and the amateur movement in Canada. Right. And what I'm seeing now is this sort of uh, this sort of a convergence of um, amateurs becoming professionals and a growing need to tell Canadian stories. But we don't have like until the National Theater School. Um, and the establishment of the MFA programs in the West. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really have a structure to train to an advanced level um, theater professionals. And people were telling stories. And so we've now, we've brought in some Americans, certainly in the Western MFA programs, but in Stratford and in the Playhouse out here and a couple other places, we brought in European and mostly British directors yeah. to sort of train yeah. people up and yes. establish a Canadian professional theater. Yes, yeah. Um, so I, think I just wanted to make sure the audience know that like we're, we're tying all these knots together yeah. to sort of 
collect the st- the beginning story of Canadian, uh, the new wave of professional yes, Canadian theater, yeah. right? And, and also, you see, it's the fact that although you have a like a British director, um, say coming in, like say someone like Robin, um, the point of view gradually is shifting to Canadian. Because uh, I mean, Robin's you know spent um, six years. What was it? Seventy, seventy-four. Yeah, seventy-four to eighty. Um, and y- you can't help but absorb something of what the community, the country, and so forth uh, is saying. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, it's it's. And I see. I think that the thing that people forget, and it's very strange. Opera is totally, at least in my opinion, is totally international. I mean, there's, there are no sort of boundaries that say you have to be a Canadian this or whatever. Um, and yet in in theater, there was always that sort of uh, unease. If, if somebody came from somewhere else, you know, you, you somehow couldn't be Canadian in the sense that you're not the same as the person who's actually grown up here. But I think that uh, just as with the the opera, I mean, uh, you can have a, a, a very sort of Canadian quality to a show that's generated by local people. Uh, and the singer who's Italian, who's uh, whatever, British, who's uh, American, uh, isn't going to somehow contaminate <laughs> from their point of view. They're, they're, they're going to, in a sense, blend in with it. Um, and I think that was the the big misunderstanding in the sense that, that that when someone like Robin came in, or I mean, you look at again talking about the internationality of opera. I mean, Latvia Mansouri came into the Canadian Opera Company, um, and he very quickly picked up on the sort of the way to take his experience, unite it with the the Canadian experience, as it were, and create shows that did very well. Um, yeah. No. I mean, I spoke with Mary Curry yesterday about John Hirsch in Manitoba yeah. uh, and how he created a wonderful collaborative and quintessentially kind of Canadian yeah. theater company in, in the Manitoba Theater Center. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in and at the Vancouver Playhouse, we've got Christopher Newton in yes. the 1970s. Right? Yes, exactly. Again, yeah, yeah. Creating original Canadian works. Um, that's all interesting. And the last question I had was about Gil Wexler. Where did he come from? Where, do you know his backstory? Yeah, yeah. He, he was... Um, he was from, uh, as far as I know, New York, or the New York area. <clears throat> and he was trained at Yale. And I think, he, again, probably through connections, um, I think some of his first big assignments uh, were either New York, uh, you know, Broadway, or he was at the um, Chicago Lyric Opera as a sort of a, a resident designer. He also designed at the at the, the uh, Rowan Big Ballet, uh, so he was doing a sort of a circuit um, that incorporated both conventional theater and uh, opera and dance. I think I think it was uh, John brought him to Stratford to do Satyricon. I think was the first show that Gil was brought in for. And sorry, which which John was this? This is John Hirsch. John Hirsch brought. Uh, Gill in. Okay. John was directing Satyricon. And, and I think uh, it was Bob Scales who was technical director, again, somebody who was U.S.-based, but who took one look and went, this is the guy we need to come and help us with a, a whole sort of uplift of the lighting system, which took place um, roughly, I think it was 
7172, I think it was, that the new, the whole new concept was installed in the festival theater. And it, it was, again, talking about equipment, so it was because uh, equipment that had been originally purchased and was originally considered had been upgraded in the sense of, of new designs and so forth and uh, slightly more reliable and so forth and so on. And uh, that that combined with opening up the ceiling, creating more space. And you see Gill then put in uh, what to me was a sort of a classic thrust stage lighting rig, which uh, used, and this is the interesting thing, I always say that you go into somebody else's theater, and if there's a basic rig there or a rep rig or whatever you want to call it, your first job is to learn what it can do. There's a tendency sometimes for people to come and say, well, this isn't the way I light. Uh, and I, 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 I think, well, that's just being kind of a bit lazy because what that rig could do in different hands, because, you know, my work, other people visiting, so was incredible. You could go and you say, is this still the same rig? Yes, it's still the same rig. We've changed some colors. We've adapted here and there, added some things. But um, that that meant you had a very solid base that uh, sort of honored in terms of the fact Gill's plot was mostly white light, uh, honored the the stage as what it was, not trying to dress it up into something else. And as I say, my experience with it was it was incredibly flexible if you took the time to understand what it could do. Uh, and control-wise at that time, was it the 120 dimmers that they had later? or was uh, it- No, actually, what went in, in I think it was, as I say, 70, 71, 72, yeah was the first strand memory dimmer called IDMQ. I think it was IDMQ. Uh, 120 dimmers, and they were they had a patch panel, uh, so it was all sort of plug-in and so forth and watch your loads and whatever. Uh, but this board, control board, was uh, the key in terms of the, the memory was apparently a unit from the U.S. Navy it was something that the U.S. Navy had developed for use on their ships as a sort of a, a, a memory system uh, that is the actual the core. And we always used to joke that it must have been tended very carefully because ours would develop a squeak. And we figured, well, the guy who's supposed to come around from the ship and oil the squeak isn't with us. But it, it was a, a, a basic board that could uh, record you know, all the relevant data of intensity and so forth and so on. Uh, it was also tr- a bit tricky. It had its own quirks and so on. Um, one day the operator made a minor mistake on a final adjustment to a queue. We lost the entire queue. That was that, that. was the point at which from then on we, tr- we, we physically tracked everything. Um, and it's taken a long time for me to, f- to sort of break that because now – it's pretty hard to lose a cue. You can sort of uh, recapture it somehow. Um, But in those days, it was 20 minutes or more to actually set the cue because you had to do it very carefully. And 20 minutes could just disappear with one keystroke that was not the right keystroke. There's no no undo button, right? Uh, No. I mean, this was probably tape memory as well. Uh, no, it wasn't actually tape. No, it was it was a, a drum actually, a rotating drum. Oh, which was very interesting. Crazy. Okay. Um, and and the subsequently we put in a new system at the Avon, 
which was MMS, Modular Memory System. And, uh, and it also replaced the, um, the IDMQ at the festival. The theory was that you had modules that were playback module, memory module, etc. And uh, they were, we were promised that in Toronto was a rack with all the mo- modules. But there was a constant swapping went on between Hamilton Place, which had the same thing, uh, and our two theaters. I remember one time when I think the, uh, uh, the, 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 store, the storage module failed on one of the two boards. And to get the storage information into the board... They had to record off the board on the module, take the module, and somehow, I think, offload it to tape. I think you're right on that tape aspect. Uh, and then take the module down to the other theater and do the same. So it was like nightmare time, sort of rushing back and forth with this sort of big electronic drawer. Um, but no, those were the days. Uh, and uh, and I remember, that, I mean, we the Avon, the first shows I lit uh, or worked with uh, Gil on at the Avon were the, um, I think it was about 100-channel individual potentiometers, uh, three-scene preset, something like that, all ha- uh, what, what, uh, ro- rotary knobs, and oh, my goodness me. Um, and and we, we, we actually worked backwards one day. We, we went, it's impossible to pre-plot this. Um, because we just can't figure out where we're going to be, so we actually recorded everything and then went back and did it on paper. You know, this this could go on to preset one, and this could be subgroup two on preset one. That'll be two cues. That kind of it was a nightmare. It took us about a day to plot it, but there we were. Yeah, that's a different way of working. That's it for is. Sure. Yes. Um, so uh, you were by nineteen eighty. You were the resident designer, and you were doing what twelve shows. In well, a, that was that was excessive. Yes. I mean, that, that was just because. I think there were either some dropouts or something happened, and uh, and and I think Robin, you know, trusted my work and so on. So off we went because he did, I think, something like six of those in the two houses. Um, but I was resident designer there, and then, as I say, leaving York meant that I was free, and uh, and one of the things that happened in 1979 was uh, I think it was 70. Eight, that Latvian Mansory was invited to direct uh, Candide at the Avon Theatre. And he liked me, liked the way I worked and so forth. And so he invited me to the COC. I think the first show I lit was 79. And then I kind of became almost like a resident designer for the COC, doing probably two or three of the shows out of, say, six or something like that per season. Um, and then picking up... Uh, Picking up a lot of work in the regions, Manitoba Theatre Centre, the the Grand at London. Um, I got I got with the operas. I was going across the country. I did uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, um, Montreal a couple of times, and um, and then occasionally overseas, which was very nice. Yeah, uh, that's great. Anything that stands out that you thought was sort of important work. Uh, maybe original operas at the COC. They were they were doing all book. Most of it was yeah. There was not much original at yeah. that point. The, again, that this the cost factor when you when you when you see the amount of time and effort that goes into an opera, you really appreciate why it's hard to start from scratch yeah. uh, because it's the uncertainty principle. 
if it doesn't work, you know, you've you've lost sort of a million dollars just like that. Um, but the it, it's hard remembering. I mean, uh, one of the shows that I, I I keep falling back onto as far as a really um, interesting experience was uh, Virginia at the Avon Theater, nineteen eighty with Maggie Smith. It was new play. Um, and H.M. Uh, Tennant picked it up to take it to the Haymarket in London. And, uh, and classically, that was a season where I was, I was doing show after show after show. I think I missed like two openings because I had to go to the next one sort of thing. But uh, London, I was able to stay for the opening at the Haymarket. And I didn't, I didn't really take in at the time how big an event it was because it was pretty much Maggie's return to London. Uh, she'd been with the company in Stratford through you know much of the uh, the later, later part of the eighties, and um, so she was sort of reestablishing herself almost in London with that show, and it was a fabulous show. I mean, she did an incredible job. Um, but very interesting to to again go back to a theater that I'd probably sat in many times uh, in the, in the nineteen sixty eight uh, spring, never thinking oh, I wouldn't don't know how to get here. And then the the other one, the other British one, was uh, taking Mikado to the Old Vic. Uh, it was the first show after Ed Mervish, who'd bought the Old Vic and refurbished it, first show that went into there. Um, and uh, again, it was a great success for Stratford, for Sue, myself, and the company, and so on. Um, and uh, made special by the fact that we had Princess Anne as our guest of honor for the first performance. Plus, uh, Jaguar cars were the designated chauffeurs for taking us from the theater to the reception, and at, which was at Savoy. So it was like, okay, <laughs> pull out all the stuff. Here we go. Uh, kind of fun. Um, that's great. I had forgotten that um, that Ed Mervish had bought the old Vic. That's something that yeah, mean. yeah. It was. It was. Now, see, I used to, as I say, as a student, I used to go there uh, in that summer of '68 or that spring of '68, uh, and it was still the National Theatre's home at that point. Uh, and they sort of uh, banged it around a bit because they built out from the original stage. And sort of block the 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 old sort of uh, boxes right against the stage, um, and I'm I'm sure it was it was a kind of a pretty tired theater by the time they finished with it, and Mervish and I'm not sure what prompted it specifically, but uh, I think he had a, an affinity for theaters that had you know a terrific history and which were threatened by oh my god they could just demolish it and build an apartment building or something so he went in there and he restored it to its former glory and it was i mean a marvelous theater um and as i say it was a great honor to be actually the first into the theater with a new show type of thing um and uh it was it was sort of a, a, I think for a lot of British people sort of nostalgia because oh, oh we've got our old theater back again kind of thing. It's quite w- wonderful and very generous. I mean, my goodness. Uh, and uh, now, uh, this is just me being curious. I'll probably cut this out. But did he sell it again? Who owns it now? That I don't know. But yeah. it 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 became a sort of a, um, a like a stock company at one point. Yes, um, and I think. 
I think I'm well. I'm pretty sure they probably the Mervishes have sold it. I I, I don't I, I I've not heard anything about their sort of hanging on to it. So it it's been probably taken over. I mean, it could even be just simply um, like a real estate deal, uh, and then in the sort of the Broadway system, it's the theater that you rent when you want to put a company together and go in there. Yeah, right. yeah. Because uh, the Motleys had used they had a resident school that was connected to the old Vic. We talked to Sean Kerwin, who had gone over to to study with the Motleys right, to, yeah. uh, in the 1970s, and they they had worked. There was an old Vic company they were working with there. Just trying to piece all these puzzles together. To yes, these yeah. Piece of the like it's a it's a web of things. Uh, and then you did a remarkable seventy productions with the COC. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it actually finally ended up being closer to eighty five or something. But. Um, no, it was because, as I say, for a stretch there, when Latvi was um, the artistic direct, general director, um, I, I was doing, as I say, two or three shows a season, and that went on for, I think, uh, 10, 12 years or something like that. Uh, and and I actually, I mean, even after Latvi left, I was still there doing uh, not quite so many, but doing a fair number uh, over the years, and um, and then of course into the new opera house, yay! Uh, uh, let's talk about the because it was at the O'Keefe Center, uh, which then became the Hummingbird Center, which then became the Sony Center. The Sony Center. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, I still call it the O'Keefe because that's yeah. I know. I, I can't get. I can't. No, I can't get away from that either. Yeah. And I like beer, so why not? Yeah. Why not? Um. Uh. That that. Venue, it was all brought in gear, like Canadian staging projects or something supplied all the yeah, gear the, for the, it. Yeah, right? the front of house was an established, like in the theater, but uh, it was a complete rental rig each time. Uh, and that's the, that's the big killer always for a company is do you buy your own equipment or do you rent? Because everybody forgets that, that warehousing. I mean, you couldn't with with something like COC. You you couldn't probably come anywhere close to justifying the cost of actually owning a rig, which only gets brought into the theater, uh, you know, whatever it is, six times a year or something like that, and has to be stored, serviced, etc. So passing that cost on to and also one of the deadliest things is that as equipment ages, uh, you know, you're faced with the actual. Uh, what would you call it, covering, in a sense, the amortization costs. Uh, and if you've got a situation where you're you're renting, you can say, I want that and that and that uh, as new or as near new. And the company will presumably, I mean, they'll charge you for it, but, but you don't have to worry about all that sort of peripheral uh, working things around. Uh, I remember one of the, uh, uh, in the early 90s, this was still at the O'Keefe, they brought in a designer to do it was a new Rigoletto. And the designer was from New York, I think. Uh, and anyways, it was a bunch of HMI in the show. Yeah. Um, which was startling. Uh, but it had been happening in Europe for yes. several years yeah. before that happened. Um, I guess it's uh, maybe like, was there a reason why we hadn't gone or did we go in that direction? I just didn't see it. Like a have we used well, I have a story about that. It was one of it was a um oh no, what was the show? It'll come to me. But anyway, um the uh the director was a young, I think, British director. And 
he had just discovered HMI. And it was like, wow, we've got to have HMI. And this was a very Baroque set. And I sort of said, well, you know, I mean, stylistically, HMI. But he insisted that we have this HMI. He insisted that we light the borders in red, green, blue, or something crazy. And, I mean, as a result, I got dreadful reviews. But the, the, the difficulty is, again, this old business that if something comes new, I mean, whether it be scenically or whether it be lighting-wise or anything else, fine, if it fits, if it, if it serves the production, if, if you can, in a sense, build uh, visually or whatever it takes a show around that and it all sort of integrates, fine. But I've had situations where I've had people wanting to do something with, say, a new piece of equipment or something like this that absolutely defeats the whole nature of the show that you're supposed to be doing. And in such a case, you just go, oh, my gosh. And you think, well, okay, we'll do this. But, you know, uh, and I've never had my name off the program, but uh, I really will have to sort of just say that, fine, okay, I probably won't put that on my resume. Yeah, sure. uh, because the, you you have to you have to be serving the production or the or the uh, I mean if, especially with opera you're often renting a set, yeah. and so the rental set comes in. Well, you've got to give some leeway to what the original set was supposed to be doing, uh, and not suddenly put you know garish light or garish colors or something. And with no time to fix it in the space. Yeah, you can. No, I mean I I've had cases where I've had to to rescue the set with lights because the set is so old or tired or something. Uh, and that's another way way of saying, okay, I'm not necessarily lighting the way I would choose to light, but I'm lighting the way I have to light so that it doesn't look like a dog's breakfast. Um, so it's, it's funny. Rentals are tricky. And also going back historically, um, I mean, when I first began lighting for the operas in sort of, this is 79, 80 and so on, um, color, photographs and color Xerox especially were not that common. So you get this kind of grayish, black and whitish image of this is what the set looked like. And you'd be at the O'Keefe in the morning and the doors of the truck would open and you'd go, oh my God, it's green. <laughs> and so there were some nasty sort of surprises there where you suddenly, okay, guys, quick, start cutting new color. Um because again, you, you you can't defeat the set. You've got to work with the set, but you didn't always know what it was going to be. And and rentals are deadly that way because you don't know what the original intent was. Yeah. If it's a different director, different um, company, yeah. who knows? I always found it odd that uh, when you rented a set, you also didn't rent a lighting design. Yeah, I think I think that the, the two things are always this business of okay, who's the director and who do they like to work with. And or, I mean, in my case, many, many times I was, uh, because I was known quantity to the producers of, say, the operas, uh, they would, in a sense, recommend me to a director and say, you know, you'll, you'll get a good a good service from this person. I, I mean, occasionally we would get a director and we'd, get, we'd be wondering, why did you ever take up directing? Uh, because I remember one one chap who was, just, I mean, belligerent as all get out, and and you had to do what was wanted, even if what was wanted was going to just be very risky. 
And I was uh, at one point. It was like, "Are you being negative like everybody else?" And you know, oh, for heaven's sakes! Uh, but um, many times, it's it's based on the assumption that that bringing somebody in from outside, uh, even if it's somebody who's worked with the director before, if it's a totally different company, uh, and this is an argument, mind you, that I I have with people in a sense, a minor argument that that I feel that if, as I said earlier, if you go to somebody else's theater. Um, it's it's really your responsibility to learn what that theater is set up to run like, uh, what the lighting is supposed to do, and so on. And and for example, San Francisco. I mean, I lit many operas in San Francisco with a plot that was designed essentially by a colleague uh, who was the resident lighting designer there, and. And I would never dream of walking in and saying I have to have change, have to change everything. But but interestingly, a little sidebar is that I believe that was what was happening that probably started to put costs up at the Met. That that having worked with Gil, I know that Gil was very fair with trying to make sure that everybody had, you know, what was optimal for their requirements and so on and so forth. But I think that he, he remarked to me at one point. He said that it, it's very difficult if somebody is able to go around you and start saying, I, I have to have so-and-so, even though so-and-so is going to really be difficult to accommodate. Um, and I think uh, I've had experiences where I've gone into other people's rigs and I've I've tried to learn them. Um, and I, I had, a, for example, a really nice compliment from Helsinki uh, working with their, their opera ballet house there where Sue and I were doing a ballet. And I said, okay, I'm not going to try to tell you how I light. I want to see how your rig works because it was partly a, a, a basic rig, uh, sort of a, a repertory rig. And so I said, send me information so I can understand your rig. And they sent me the information. I studied it, did what I needed to do in terms of colors and so forth and so on, sent it back. And they said, this is the best set of of information we've had so far. They were newish five years or something. Because they said, you understand what we're trying to do, or you understand how we work. And that, to me, is critically important, because otherwise you're just going to cause chaos and probably not get what you want, in my opinion. Okay, so we've talked a lot about uh, how you got to Stratford. We talked about uh, your work at the opera and... um, some personal history. Let's talk about uh, some technical history and some and some and the approach at Stratford. Now, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days because I've been talking with a lot of set designers and and projector designers and sound designers. And uh, because I was a, because I was a lighting designer, I am most comfortable talking about the technical nitty gritty details of lighting design. Something we don't talk about. Like I don't say to a set designer. Um, how have your risers changed over the last 20 years? <laughs> um, your paint swatches, like what paint, uh, you know, like if you, although there's some interesting paint ephemera, like the fact that you can't get certain colors of paint anymore yeah, and things yeah. like that. Or they're poisonous. Or they're poisonous, yes. yeah. But um, lighting, for some reason, because of its very technical and systematic nature, it's something that also we can talk about in a common language. So I just wanted to apologize to people who think that I'm, I ask lighting designers different questions than set designers. It's just the nature of, just the breadth of my knowledge. Um, but I'm interested in how, um, first of all, lighting, uh, 
lighting a pros house is pretty straightforward. I think lots of people know how to light a pros house. Yeah, I think, again, though, it's that business of are you lighting it from the point of view of just making sure you get everybody visible yeah. or are you actually lighting the show? Um, because uh, I just had a, a fun experience at UVic, actually, that um, Jeffrey Wren, who is a, ma- a master's student in um, directing, uh, reworked Comedy of Errors uh, using a lot of popular music. And he said, I, I, I want this to be a sort of a, a cross between uh, a, a, a kind of a traditional show and a kind of a, a, a rock and roll slash dance piece. And so he said, for example, I, I, I want people to be able to come out on the stage from a wing and I don't want to see the light that's on them until they're actually in the light, that kind of thing. And so it, we had, and, and the back wall was also a mirror. Uh, and so we had a lot of fun doing, I would call it like unconventional cross house lighting or, or much more dance lighting uh, Pross dance lighting than a more conventional sort of musical show, or certainly a more conventional play, and and I think that the assumption that it's easy to light a pross house uh, can sometimes dissolve into terror if you get like a big opera set or something that uh, in scale, for example, I, I did a um, a production of the uh, the David Hockney. Turandot, uh, that was originally San Francisco, I think, and they rented it down to San Diego. And, I mean, absolutely massive. And so that you're suddenly realizing you're not just lighting, uh, like, the floor and people and the ramps and so forth. You're lighting great swaths of space. And, and again, I think it's so important that you actually do create the atmosphere or the style or whatever you want to call it that suits the show. It's not just bang, there it is. Um, there have been some very good um, sort of live from the British theaters shows recently where you've seen a very tight pros stage, uh, very cleverly lit, not, not at all the sort of the, you know, fill it out and wash it over and here we are. So I, I, always, I always feel that the, the, what, what you could say is maybe there's no um, sort of simple formulas uh, every time you do something, there's a quirk somewhere. And uh, again, in, in trying to teach the lighting, it's, okay, start with the basic objectives, obviously being able to see the, the performers. Uh, but even that is something that you don't want to overdo because uh, you want to have the safety, I call it a safety net that, oh, I can't quite see their face. Okay, here we can add a little bit of whatever it is. But... Um, if you if you start uh, too conscientiously to make sure that every square inch is absolutely lit, uh, and then especially if you're not very good at manipulating the actual levels and so forth, uh, it can be terribly dull. Um, whereas if you approach it from okay, uh, I mean, say take a show like Long Day's Journey into Night, it's it's all about the atmosphere actually acting on the story. It's uh, when I say that it's the the, the story is watching a family sort of slide through the course of a day into sort of gloom and despair. 
And so that you have to light it with that in mind, not, oh, this is a lovely interior house, let's light it. (laughs) That's interesting. I also wonder if, um, like, uh, the original... Uh, the original way that I was taught, just going from basics to like, okay, well, we the basic element of lighting is that we have to see people. Maybe we don't want to see all the people all the time, but at some point we're going to want to see someone. Yeah. And so we have to have some sort of system by which we can see a clump of people. And so you start with the McCandless method, the three-point lighting. And that was developed, that's coming out of the 1930s, right? Yes. Yeah. And when control and fixtures and power were all different. Like yeah. it was, it's a system born out of a different technology. Yeah. Right? But it's also, you see, it, this is what's many mostly understood. It's a system. It's not the system. And this is what I think poor Stan McCandless got labeled with, that he, he, this is the way to light the stage. And that's not what he was saying. Is if, if, if all else fails, here's a way that you can approach it that will get you, you know, sort of, uh, eight-tenths of the way or something or whatever you want to say. Um, but again, I think that what you're saying is, yes, okay, put the provisions for making sure that if push comes to shove, you can add the little glow on the face there. But look at what the show is saying. I mean, uh, a production of Dracula, a lot of it is, you know, uh, sharp angles, uh, strange breakups, strange angles from the floor, this kind of thing. So that y- if you start with the assumption that I-, I know I'm going to work to the specifics of this show, but as I say, my safety net, which may be elements of McCandless or anybody else. I mean, one of the things that I have found is that uh, working with operas and things like that, there's just not enough front of house light to actually do a sort of a McCandless. So I, I generally work with uh, largely the diagonal washes, and then I touch in, you know, a front light if I need it. But if I can get by without it, or with, for example, uh, some tips and things, uh, a, a lot of, and in fact, I, I had one funny story where a director would not allow me in an opera to bring up any front light. And I, I said, well, I, let's trade off. Don't bring anybody downstage to the brass. <laughs> and we had a little battle there. Uh, but there are situations where uh, you can completely, uh, what would you call it, undermine the show by by trying to be sort of too formulaic, uh, and I think that's that's the the real treachery of lighting, is that there is no answer. Like like it's funny speaking coming from sciences, you know, one plus one equals two, but you cannot apply that formula to lighting because everything you do. It's going to be a slightly different challenge. And there may be sort of patterns that you can follow, but don't sort of say, oh, I just did this. In fact, it's very funny. Again, uh, one of my uh, stage crew on an opera where I was doing one show and a visiting designer was doing the other show um, came to me and said, you know, it's very interesting, but this plot that this other designer has put in place, and it's a totally different show than the last time they were here, is the same plot. And I said, well, that's sort of strange because, you know, when I do, I mean, I do plots that are sort of the same, but I'd never say I just hang a plot that becomes the all-purpose. Um, and so that you you can, I think, fall into a trap where something works, but it won't necessarily work the next time. 
uh, because there's subtle circumstantial changes or a director with a different sort of eye. Um, and uh, so I think you have to be cautious about sort of thinking that if I can just find the magic bullet, I'm there. Uh, so two things. Um, just to touch on that, I think we've talked about this before on the show, So, and I hate to repeat myself, but I think it's germane to this discussion. I want to get your reaction. Uh, I, there's a, in the, I've just forgotten his name, but the, the lighting designer for the, for the Broadway version of the premiere of Titanic, um, a friend of mine, I forget his name. He did the unsinkable, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he did the unsinkable. It was wait, it's our first pun. It's our first pun of the night. Uh, uh, of and they they ha- his way of working, which my understanding was because of the way the Broadway works and because of the long preview times and it's a it's a new show, so you want to you're creating a new show, new show from scratch. You put every lamp in every position with as many color choices as you can, and then you winnow away. Yes. Yeah. Completely opposite to the way we work in Canada, where we go, how, I got six lamps. Yes. Okay, yes. How am I going to use them? Yes. Uh, and it's a very broad way, uh, way of working. But it also means that you're not rehanging lamps. That's like, right. oh, now we have to hang a whole new system. Yeah, it's a, cost, it's a cost-saving system, yeah. essentially, or at least cost-avoidance uh, right. system. Yeah, yeah. And, and so in that case, his assistant would draft up the standard... Red Ro- Ted, Ted, Red Rogers. What's that called? The Rogers, uh, whatever. I can't remember the name of the theater now. Whatever, whatever the theater is. Yes, here's the, yeah. that version of that. Yes, that goes one. in. Yes, yes, yeah. And then we'll work from there. Yeah. Um, the so that's I just wanted to mention that. Yes. Uh, I mean that seems to be a bit of a luxury. Well, uh, it is. It is, and it isn't because the 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 danger there is that you're looking at schedules that. Uh, back to your sort of Canadian equivalent that, you know, if I let a show for MTC, Roy, a Royal MTC actually now, um, if I let a show there, uh, I have a pretty good chance to see rehearsals, a pretty good chance to take a little time with the set designer, with the costume designer and so on, and certainly with the director uh, to come up with something that is, for lack of a better term, a pretty much a custom designed plot. Um, and I think that what faces a, a, a Broadway person is that uh, they're working on the principle. I mean, they're, they're, when I say they're working, they're, they're working in a system that says, you know, we, we can't allow any kind of extra time outside of what exists in a schedule that was cooked up by the um, actuarial boys and everybody else. And so, and, and in fact, a, an interesting sidebar on that is that uh, working with the uh, the company that supplied the opera with their equipment, um, I remember uh, one time talking to one of the electricians who set up all the rigs for them and stuff like that. And um, he said, you know, a rig just came in from a rental that I think was at one of the rental houses in Toronto. And he said, a lot of the lamps were never even turned on. He said, you know, I, I could tell because we had like a template and no sign of, you know, warping anything. And that was because of that same thing, that that there was no time allowed for, as you said, like rehang, reshuffle, re whatever. So you simply had to work that way, and you used your experience as to what worked in that house as the kind of the guide for what shape the rig took, and and I and it's a it's a kind of a foreign concept to the idea of actually collaborating. Which again is something that I think does happen under certain circumstances, 
where you find you simply can't collaborate. Because, for example, most of the Canadian theatres will build in-house, or certainly very near to being in-house. In Broadway, maybe at five different shops, uh, thinking costume sets, you know, distributed. And so, you know, unless you have lots of time as a designer to go and visit everybody and actually see things, you have to rely on the drawings, which you hope is what they're building to and not the set that wasn't re- was rejected for cost. There was, a, there was a show in Toronto that famously last year, two years ago, uh, somebody decided, the producer decided to have it built in Mexico. Oh, my goodness. And... But we, we're not going to send a designer down there because it's too far away. It's yes. cheaper to have it built down there yes, and then shipped. shipped up. And, of course, no one had a scale ruler when they were building it. Like, it was just because there was no TD down there yeah, so yeah, to explain yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, not to belittle their carpentry skills, but no one was there. They yeah. just sent the drawings and they built whatever they built that the yeah. drawings said. Yeah. And it was a disaster. Yeah, uh, yeah, Ugh, but it still well. There, there, well, actually, there there was a, a, an opera that was built for Chicago by I think it was a Danish designer, and they said, okay, so the, the Danish designer is right on hand. We'll have it built. I think somehow they got through the IA sort of uh, situation. We'll have it built in Denmark by a big firm that does all kinds of sort of exhibition work and things. Perfect, you see, and so the set arrives. And it's massive towers that are like uh, 30 feet tall and sort of like an eight-by-eight eight platform type of thing. And they went, well, where are the casters? Yeah. And the answer was, well, the company that builds them builds, as I say, exhibition things, which go up and come down. You want these to move because you're on a rep. Oh, my God. And so at great expense, they had to add the casters. So, yeah, that could, that could happen. It's like, whoops. <laughs> That's nuts. The other thing I want to talk about is a little bit of a rant. When you said this Prost line, I've done a number of shows that have started either in a small theater and gotten big, or they're touring, and the configuration of the front of the stage changes uh, from like a very narrow apron to a very large apron, and that separation between the front row and the and the plaster line is dynamic, like just huge, right? Yeah, sometimes yeah, it's twenty yeah. feet, sometimes it's four yes, feet. Yeah. Um, why? Do we build pros houses that don't accommodate a transition from the plaster line to the front of the apron lighting wise? Because it ends up being a completely yeah. different well, show. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing there, I think you see, is that uh, it's that era that said we want adaptable theaters. And the okay, interesting sidebar story on that is uh, Bob Scales, who was the TD at Stratford for a number of years, uh, went down to become TD at Seattle Rep. And Seattle Rep was building a brand new theater. And one of the first debates was how deep is the apron, you know, front of the, as you say, from the plaster line forward. And Bob said, this is a pros house. A pros house is designed to look through a frame at a set and a world, and that's behind the frame. And he said the the apron will be precisely two feet deep, and that's it, kids. I mean, the, the thickness of the pros kind of thing. And and I think the problem is that so many, there's two things. There's so many places were built as pseudo-adaptable, i.e. we can build an apron, you know, out, and then 
in the consultation process, nobody thought to ask the if there was a lighting consultant, you know, what should go out there? Should there be a grid or something like that or some extra slots or whatever? Yeah. Um, and the second thing is this phobia that sometimes runs through either institutions or directors that says, I've got to get the actor close to the audience in a prost situation. Uh, you know, Stratford with its stress stage, I mean, you are within reach of the, of the people in the front row. But, but the, the two things add together. And I think uh, very seldom, I mean, uh, when, we, when we did a big redesign at the Avon Theatre, they actually put what amounted to two big kind of tech towers on the sort of the apron zone, which could be like box booms for shooting upstage in a conventional uh, sort of behind the prostype show, or you could put in good side light at least. Um, but I, I really think that it, it's the fact that, that a sort of um, an adaptable theater, or as they used to often call them, multi-purpose, is a no-purpose because you are hamstrung in some way or other. I mean, acoustics, for one thing, uh, if you've got you know a deep apron and you play a lot on the apron, acoustics are going to be totally different than if you're at or behind the pros. So it's um, I know and and I love that position, which exists in some theaters, which is a pipe that is in fact just in front of the pros. Mm-hmm. There was one at um, at San Francisco Opera, and it was great because you could actually make that very high steep side light shot couldn't get through the process from upstage, but which you could link up with the side light that could get through from upstage sort of thing. Uh, yeah, no, it's... Um, I, I, and I think you see, again, it's a question of frequently theaters are built, I think, without everybody who's got their two cents worth to contribute having a chance to actually give this information to, shall we say, a, a good consulting firm and say, okay, this is what we want, and then keep referencing back and forth as the consultants come up with something. Frequently, there's a step missed somewhere. Somebody comes in after the drawings are, are off to the contractor and says, oh, I forgot to tell you, we wanted to have a, and then by then it's like, oh, shoot, can we do it? Um, or or conversely, some somebody is is on the board and says, well, we really don't, I mean, lighting is so straightforward. It's going to be a whole bunch of pipes on stage, blah, blah, blah. Forgetting that front of house can be as critical. I mean, access to front of house, one of the biggest problems. Again, when we did the Avon re- revisit, we tried to make sure that there was access because being a rep house, you know, if you can't get to the lights, change colors and stuff, it's like nightmare. But it, the classic old proscenium houses, nearly always have access problems in that front of house anyway. And uh, frequently, you know, up goes some kind of a truss or something to compensate. Yeah. I mean, uh, case in point, the Winter Garden in Toronto has upstage, downstage uh, pipes in the front of house. And they go a bunch of cantatas. Well, they used to have cantatas there now. It may be source fours. But getting to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some crazy ladder thing had to be, like there was no... It was a bizarre solution. Yeah. But how else do you... Ha- I mean, it's an old house, and how do you... Yeah, oh, yeah. Rage, you go yeah, from the house yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. and I mean, the, the Alex had 
a front of house truss. Yeah. But you had to have just a, a little lift with a sort of like a bosun's chair equivalent that, that went up and you could sort of track it back and forth. And so if you did something, you'd make sure it was right before you brought the person down because it was a, a two-minute, three-minute travel just to get down. So, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, we had a position at, I used to work at Stage West in Mississauga. We had a position at Stage West over... And we hung everything there. This is back in the day of the A-frame that was still legal oh, in yes, Ontario. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. And the A-frame in the front of the house was 25 feet high. So you were climbing up a ladder and then climbing up an eight-foot extension oh. off the top of it and dangling your legs yes. and doing a dance. We used to have lamps that were on top of the ramps. So the, the front of the house was tiered and there were ramps down to the flat area. We can get to most of the front of the house in the flat area. There was one lamp. You couldn't get to it with the, with, without putting the A-frame on a, on a ramp. Yeah, so now it's pitched at 18, at 15 degrees. And when that lamp blew out, we just let it be yeah, dark. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We never changed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's get, to, let's get to the history of the, the festival stage in Stratford. Now, we talked a little bit about the transition from the tent and visibility and to more control. Um, but what was the system what was the system that you inherited from Gill to light a thrust stage? It, it, initially it was uh, 120 channels of which I think it was 60 or something were 5Ks or 6Ks and the rest were 3Ks that kind of thing uh, and a patch panel. And the positions were indeed modified from the original tent, uh, or at least not tent, the original actual building, which had sort of mimicked some of the tent, I think. Um, so, and Gill had done a very sort of uh, good covered coverage rig with a combination of mostly three and sometimes four-point areas so that everywhere was basically very well covered from the point of view of the sort of the, the, the I'll use the loose term, front light, um, and then a system of radiating backlights um, and also some big diagonal backlight positions. So it, it, it gave you a lot of that dynamic shift potential where if you put like a lot of the, the key from, say, up left, you could just subtly fill it or you could use the um, individual backlights to do sort of something that was mostly backlight for most people uh, and a little bit of fill, that kind of thing. So a lot of flexibility. However, what did happen was that moving moving away from the original concept of very few set elements, uh, you know, just the balcony and, uh, you know, chairs, tables, this kind of thing, gradually level changes sort of, Objects when the when the balcony was made removable, elements went in there which required different approaches to lighting and so on, and so we began to go through um, sub patch and mini patch, where you'd sort of take a, a couple of big dimmers, run out a line, and then you could add ch- uh, you know more circuits, or 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 you could put a breaker panel. I mean, we used to use the breaker panel on the patch panel all the time as a reset. You know, you had the, all, the, all the red guys were on for Act 1 and they were off for Act 2, that kind of thing. Um, and eventually it just got, well, chaotic because uh, you'd spend half your life trying to work out uh, how to make certain lamps work for you in certain positions uh, as individual specials or what have you. And 
and on top of that, having gone through the MMS phase, and then we were also, I think, yeah, we went into the um, the first of the of the sort of the the neat consoles. What the heck were they called? The um, oh boy, brain gone. The, uh, the mini light palettes. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the light palette. The light, light palette. Yeah, yeah. Um, which one lovely story was that the uh, one of the salespeople was asked by a high tech person about the computer system what what language does it use he said well english uh, anyway uh but but and and that meant that we had more flexibility better storage etc cetera, etc cetera, more reliability and then it became obvious that they were jtm dimmers which probably were designed and built in the sort of the 60s uh very reliable but um, they were, as I say, big capacity or intermediate capacity, but none of this dimmer per circuit stuff. Uh, I think we did eventually add a few little dimmer packs, but it, it really was sort of a, kind of a literally a, a plugged together kind of tinker toyish thing. And so it was decided that, that uh, the system would be completely overhauled, more circuits installed. We, we dallied with the sort of the, um, the dimmer... Uh, dimmer modules that you plug into a live circuit, that was one option. But we finally settled on a conventional dimmer rack with, um, I think it was the Strand um, s- sensors, I think they were called. I've forgotten. There's ETC know. sensors and Strand, uh, the CD80s would be the early year. Uh, I can't remember the... the uh, anyway, they were, they were the, the, one of the smart... Stra- the, oh, the, the then smart Strand dimmer. Yeah. Uh, and more of them, more circuits. Um, and we actually had an interesting experience because uh, we decided, okay, we, the, the light palette is, is passe. It's done its job. What should we buy to replace it? And uh, just to, to give you an interesting sort of flip-flip, flip-flop, uh, at that point I was lighting shows at um, the San Francisco Opera where they had, they had the AVEP system at San Francisco, and so we did a canvas of, of the major manufacturers and had, I think it was three or so companies, I think Colortran, I think, came up, um, ETC came up, uh, AVAB came up. AVAB showed up, and they said, oh, it's really frustrating, but the actual console has got left behind somewhere in the shipping. What do we do? And and so the the guy who was demonstrating said, "It's it's easy." He said, "I can show you how the system works, just using you know computer uh, hookup, you know keypad and so forth." And we all went really, and and what it turned out was that at that point, AVAB actually was much more a pure computer system than say think people like the Strand and Colortran and so on, uh, which had continued the sort of the old-fashioned kind of faders and stuff. Um, and a couple of our guys really liked it. They said, well, you know, this I, I can relate to this because, uh, you know, I have a computer at home and blah, blah, blah. And so we, we actually chose AVAB. So we had AVAB driving the uh, strand dimmers. And I think everybody was generally very pleased. However, about six, seven years after we'd purchased AVAB, unfortunately, AVAB split its sort of functions. And the actual guys who designed and maintained the system, the actual control system, like the, the, the programmers, 
actually were split off from the company. And the company, I think, was bought by, I think it was ETC or somebody. And so uh, there was a, an awkward period where we'd always been able to just refer directly to the original programmers to solve anything that came up or to modify the program, because that was the beauty of it. You could easily modify it. Um, so what happened there was eventually, I think they, they ended up going to ETC, I believe. Um, but one of the key things was trying to have the same system in all the theaters, because then operators could interchange, uh, if necessary, even you know parts and stuff could interchange. Um, but the, the the difference when we got the new system was that we went to Dimmerper Circuit for most of the major functions and used the uh, the groups and so on to be able to reconstitute so the old pattern so you could run either groups or individual dimmers and it became or individual channels so it became a much more flexible but but effectively now when I left we were still using the basis of Gill's original sort of philosophy uh, I think it changed somewhat when I left uh, and I'm not sure exactly how I know that there was talk of, of putting steeper angles on things but for, for me, uh, either arena or thrust is difficult because you've got to be able to get into the eyes. And at the same time, directors are screaming, why is the light going way over there? So it's a kind of a a, a, a moot point, I think, really. Uh, yeah, whereas on a pros, at least you've got places to bury the oh, lamp yeah. in, uh, off stage. Yeah, yeah. But on a thrust, there's no place to bury the spell. No. Although interesting that, that going to shows in Britain recently where, for example, at the um, the new theater at Stratford-upon-Avon, uh, they used the sort of the extreme rear, uh, up-left, upright wing positions to bury light. Uh, dark, dark wall. And so that as you came out through a door, you were picked up by light, but it was actually light that was spilling partly from the main part of the stage. So it was an interesting way to sort of solve it. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, and open white. Now, uh, I mean, it makes sense because of the brown kind of natural or the stained wood deck. Um, and uh, I don't know. Like I no, had, had you guys tried inner between your color changes and stuff a lot in the 70s and early 80s or was this was the open white just okay well what what it basically was uh, and, and it goes back to this little business of, of design preference um, is that you you have to when you're designing a show come up with a what I would call a reference white and it might actually be pink it might be lavender it might be whatever uh, I mean, I, I remember somebody saying, I think it was a German director I was working with, that the, the Brecht open white was actually what we would call like HMI, yeah. you know, 6,000 degrees, that type of thing. Uh, and I think the point from my perspective, lighting the variety of shows that we had to light on that stage was that using the open white as the reference color at least you knew that it wouldn't grossly distort any particular choice in the designer's set, costume, whatever, props, etc. Um, and Gill was very skillful in using the natural range of color that the, the dimming in and out 
produced so that like a, a say a, a torch lit scene could be actually just a bunch of lamps and all that sort of 20 percent uh whereas the daytime was you know a few a few lights at sort of 100 percent that type of thing uh and the second thing was obviously that if you chose a color uh it probably would be impractical to change all say 150 lights of the so-called basic or something to that color and then have to pull them out again for something that didn't really suit um and so we used basically uh the open white for for area fills or whatever we want to call them and sort of certain backlights and so on and then and then washes that could be changed as as color between shows uh I had an interesting experience with uh, a season at the Avon where we had a an all-white set. I mean, it was white melamine, white shag carpet, and I put open white on it, and, I mean, it looked like the, 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 the laundry yellows. Yes. You know, it was like, oh, my God. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take a big risk, and I'm going to use the, the 53, I think it is, special lavender, yeah. or one of the special lavenders, and it cleaned up. The white looked great. And the joke was that I think we were doing another show which had a conventional wood floor and things like that. And I used open white in a breakup. And one of my director friends came to me and he said, I love the color you used in that in those leaves it was so lovely sort of autumnal so i said ha ha fooled you that was open white uh, on check at that sort of like you know 70 percent or something like that and what you were referencing with your eyes was that lavender so the 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 simple answer is that in any repertory there's a limit somewhere to how much you can actually physically change and i mean i suppose we're we're rapidly moving into the world with the uh, LEDs of actually having infinite change. Yeah. And, and God knows, uh, I remember working with the, the early VLs that the only problem was that over the course of a season, there was a drift. And for example, lighting at San Francisco with the VLs, I'd, I'd come in in July to do the pre-tech for a show that opened in October. And we'd look at the show in October and go, oh, wait a minute, the VLs are not the color that we chose because just an incremental shift. Now, I think it would be less obvious with uh, LEDs because the LEDs are actually voltage and bingo, it's going to be right. At least you hope it is. Um, so I think that the, uh, the the way of the future will be you know, what I would call more or less, more or less infinite possibilities. Uh, and certainly the irony is that now that in Europe, I think they're saying that like everything has to start moving to LEDs. And they're going to have a hell of a time, cost-wise, refitting all these theaters. Although that may bring the price down in the long run. Who knows? Yeah. And we don't know how they age either. Like, that's the concern. Like, at 10,000 hours, will they look the same as they yes, do at yeah, hours? Yeah, there may be a sort of an incremental drift somewhere there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if they're all drifting the same way, then it's Yeah, who will issue. notice, yes. Yeah, that's but a, if they point. don't, though, yes. <laughs> if it's nonlinear, then we're kind yes, of screwed. yeah, yeah. Um, I remember having a, a similar issue. I did a, um, uh, when I was first out of school, I did a show, and I talked about this with Glenn Davidson, so refer back to that podcast, uh, about a show called He Won't Come In From The Barn, which was a, a show at Blythe Festival 
and it was all barn 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 board and right. painted to look that way. So the entire all the walls were gray basically yeah. with some straw on the ground. And uh, we did a color test um, early on, and uh, the sort of standard go to happy like. Uh, tits and teeth kind of like comedy lighting with the pink and the ambers did not look good. And uh, I settled on a lavender front wash of a 51 and a 54 as you get the contrast, but they're in the same range. Yes. And it made people's like people looked warm. Yeah. Because of the pink in the in the gel, but it worked well with the walls because they were all gray. Yeah. Yeah. And I never considered it that, that it was a color temperature is, is it well? It's a combination. Of, uh, in that case, it's sort of it's your tweaking color temperature and you're tweaking the, the actual transmission range. Right. So that, um, but I think you see. I think this is where it does get interesting with with color because um, you can uh, uh, just one little story. Again, German director. Uh, he said. Um, uh, he said. I think that that special or whatever it was. He says. I think it's just a bit too kind of harsh. And I said, okay, oh, I'll put a warm gel in. He says, just hang a second lamp and take them both down. And that was like, oh, okay. You know, if you've got lots of lamps, well, that's one way of doing it. But I think that this this color choice thing is is really tricky because it is the fact that un- unless you have, as for example, when Sue and I did Mikado, I actually went into fittings. And I was looking at colors that I thought I would use and making sure that they did, you know, what we wanted. And this is this principle, again, of early enough to actually integrate in the design process rather than having to say, well, I sure hope this color works. Um, because often, as you've just said, you, you can use, for example, in a, a, an arena stage, it's a great place to use those very slight differences, like, as you said, like a 51-54. So you've got one axis in one direction is 51, the other is 54. And then it means that audiences see just a little bit of modeling, but not knowing why, because there's, they think it's the same color. It actually isn't. And, and just these, some of those very, very pale you know, pinks and blues and so on, um, you can do wonderful things by getting that little bit of subtle contrast and not distorting the show too much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Um, all right, so I don't know where to go next. Uh, the advent of moving lights might be an interesting thing. You, I mean, it, uh, the you said this big change in the dimmer per circuit probably happened in the early nineties, right? Ninety, ninety one. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It was, I think, yes, at, at the festival. Anyways, I think I think it was ninety four or something. I can't remember exactly. Okay, and then the next big step, I guess, is to incorporate moving lights yeah. and uh, things like well, we, scrollers make an obvious change, and the sea changers make an obvious, yeah. you know, uh, just because of the like the more color changes. Yes. And, um, yeah. Oh, you know what we should do actually. Uh, we talked. Uh, I talked with Kevin about the photo paper. Um, oh, the templates. Gobo, the templates. Yes, yes. But we and we we had. A, we had I think we covered the technology and how it worked and everything else. The questions that were left open were when it started, and like how did it? Well, it's it, my recollection was it, it. It was probably in the early eighties, I think, because I. Th- I think it may have begun at a, well, maybe in both theaters, but what at the Avon was the big problem was 
the guys had a hell of a time reaching down under the bridge and, and you know, uh, resh- physically reshuttering stuff uh, because the cuts were going to come, you know, into the floor or they came into the top of the wall or whatever. And, and I think it was actually a sort of a brainstorming with uh, Chris Wheeler, who was our specialist technician in um, electronics, uh, and and several others of us that that were sort of playing about with the idea of what, what, there was some way to reproduce the shutters on a template, and that's where the idea of the photo paper that would show the outline on a, a one second burst of light type of thing or whatever it was, uh, and and then it became the fact that yes, we could not only f- f- reshutter lamps because the rule rule of thumb that we adopted. Unlike, say, in a big opera house, rule of thumb we adopted was that you can put a lamp in, but you can't. Uh, you can change its color. You could reshutter it in effect. Uh, you could you could put a, uh, a template. You could do various things. You could not actually physically unlock it and move it because chaos might ensue uh, and time uh, and manpower and so on and. So that the idea of the the photo so-called photo template that we came up with uh, meant that if we ran all the lamps to a reasonably hard edge uh, with the shutter template or with the template, as it were, and then put a light frost of some sort, then you sort of had your cake and eat it because the lamp could be uh, a fill light of some sort shuttered to a particular configuration, Slightly soft edge, perfect, okay. If, on the other hand, you wanted to use that same lamp as part of a breakup wash, you could, in fact, take your 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 frost out, and and it extended the range of potential for a given lamp. Now, in the big opera houses, the point is that they have many more people and they have more time, so that when they do a changeover, uh, they're actually physically refocusing stuff, and they have <coughs> floor patterns. I mean, not floor patterns, but they have... Um, uh, the grid system and, you know, stand here and focus and so on. Uh, so that that was simply out of the league of what we could accomplish at Stratford. A great system, I think, that I was told when Gil was at the Met, uh, they would bring the fire curtain in, then project a a grid using a Pani projector, and then the lamps that they had from front of house were reshuttered to that grid uh, off photographs, uh, you know, so that they, they could be doing on stage, off stage type of thing. Um, but I think the 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 key is obviously to set limits and say, okay, manpower wise, time wise, uh, reachability, all that. What is the way that you can do the rep? Uh, I was going to say uh, on Phantom on the Phantom tour, Alan Brody was the associate LD or assistant LD who toured with it, and they brought in a floor cloth. They would fly the pipe into the ground, and then they would draw a circle around where the thing is, yes. and they would at least get yeah. a fairly close focus of where all the scallops were. Yes. So they that's right. Yeah. 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 And I think I, I've done that occasionally with just a roll of paper. Yeah. You know, per pipe. If it's if you can't do the whole stage, you can do part of it. Yeah. yeah but exactly. that yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's very cool. Um, okay, great. Well, that's good. That answers that question. Uh, let's get on to moving lights and stuff like that. Like, it, like that seems like an obvious way to to move ahead. How do you? How did the schedule um, have to expand to accommodate the extra programming time and all? Well, that okay. Stuff? The, the, the first thing is that if you're if you're doing 
Uh, I mean, okay, I'm referring now to, say, San Francisco, where we ended up with a fairly good-sized moving light rig. Um, if it's really the fact that lamps that would otherwise be hard to access or, you know, there's no position that you can shoot two directions, et cetera, because the lamp won't move. Okay, if we had that, what we used to do was actually incorporate the focus of the moving lights into the focus time. So they were treated as though they were real lights, mm -hmm. and you just created a focus group for that particular scene, and away you went. I think once you move beyond that kind of thing, you've got to add time for the fact that you're going to be fiddling with you know, multiple functions, whether they be zooms, uh, edge, uh, shutters if there's shutters, color, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you can't say that it will save time in the focusing process or the setup process. I mean, when I say setup, setting cues and stuff, um, it will simply save you buckets on how many fixtures and you know how much time you might need to otherwise do like changeovers and so forth and so on. Because if and and, and actually it was access at the Patterson Theater uh, that because it, there was actually concern about the safety of using the the lifts as we were using them because the outriggers weren't, you know, ideally far enough and this kind of thing. And so the answer was, well, then let us buy moving lights. Yeah. And the other the other thing about moving lights, of course, is are you going to go for, I would call it horsepower with arcs, or are you going to go with incandescent? Because incandescent's a lot easier to integrate. And in fact, um, I remember Kevin, I think, was the first, Kevin Fraser was the first person to use the, moving light rig at the Patterson, which was just the um, VL1000s with the incandescent. And somebody in the board who you know signed the check for $40,000, whatever it was, uh, comes up to him afterwards and says, well, what's this fancy lighting thing? I didn't see any of it. And the answer was, that's because we were using it in a way that it was simply to get access to lights that otherwise were inaccessible and constantly change them. So Kevin used them all the way through the show, but they they never moved as such. Right, and and contrary to that, I, I remember doing um, uh, Trojan Women where we had an explosion and used a uh, a lamp straight down, actually at the moment of sort of the big flash, actually zooming open so it looked like the sort of the shock wave. You know that so that was obvious that was something special. But uh, if you use them as, as certainly we used them at the San Francisco Opera and so on, they were simply a fixture which was infinitely variable and easily variable. Yeah. That's great. So let's uh, just in the last 15 minutes talk about training and the, the new theater generation, et cetera. Because right. you're out here still teaching at uh, UVic. Yes. Uh, where you've landed to share your, you know, what is a master level of lighting knowledge. Uh, and, like, what do you think, um, first of all, are, uh, has lighting uh, training or even just design training itself changed since you were, uh, you know, t uh, talking to students back in the 70s? Uh, and, and how so? And let's start. Well, there. I think, I, I think the, the, the big change has been the fact that you're, you're worried so much less typically about sort of uh, what I call the nuts and bolts that the, uh, you know, watts and amps and all that kind of thing are, are, in a sense, taken care of generally by, in fact, you've got dimmer per circuit and that kind of thing. And, and obviously, 
the sort of the logistics of programming in some senses, I mean, it's, it's, there's been a flip because it used to be, can you write all these little numbers down on this chart, which then have to be read back into the board and, you know, the, the potentiometers moved, um, has been replaced by, in some cases, quite sophisticated programming. And, and what is interesting in that context is that nowadays there are actually people who want to train as programmers, not as lighting designers. In other words, the, the lighting designer says, this is what I want, and the programmer on whatever the system he's got or she's got is able to make that happen. And that's a, that's a big change because it used to be just pushing a lever up or down or turning a knob. That was it, kids. Uh, and if you, if you need anything more, more than that, that's, that's not possible. Um, and I think that uh, I still feel, based on my own experience and also the number of people I have, I've kind of mentored, that the one big factor that still has to be covered and sometimes perhaps isn't as much as it should be is how do you actually get along in the process under a variety of circumstances? I mean, you can have a director who may be, uh, I'll call them lighting illiterate. Uh, okay, how do you handle that person as opposed to the, the, the director who's ready to take over all your magic sheets and actually cue the show themselves? And, you know, the spectrum of that is incredibly wide. And it's... It's so essential, I think, that somebody who goes out of a training situation, either the training situation offers some of that, which I think the best schools do because they, they subject people to a large number of different approaches or individuals uh, who can be either people visiting or they can be staff and so on, which is great. Uh, or you need to be the, the person who's lucky enough to actually get that, that first job assisting somebody. And... It may be nothing more, I think, than the notion that if you track people whose work you really like, um, okay, if they happen to be coming into town to the resident theater company, whatever it is, to do a show, write them a letter and say, you know, I'm, I'm just finishing blah, 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 whatever, at the school. Uh, I would love to just be able to come in and watch you work and help you if I could type of thing. And I've had people do that with me who – in at least a couple of cases, have gone on to become lighting designers. Uh, and, and I think that looking back on my career, I mean, working with Gil was, was literally like taking the PhD in lighting. Beca and not just because of, of purely the sort of the technique and so forth of, of how do you light the show, but just in watching how he handled situations. And, and I always tell the story that, that I was trying to be very helpful as the assistant the first time. And uh, I'd helped him, I think, drop the magic sheets and stuff. And we put a special lamp in for a particular scene. And uh, I, uh, I, was I was perplexed because we came to that scene and, and Gil never touched this lamp. And, and I sort of, um, I sort of I kind of, I think, tapped my pencil as lightly as I could on this particular thing. And he goes, shut up. And I thought, what have I done? And... At the end of the session, he said to me, sorry, he said, I, I know I may have upset you there, but he said, I'm not upset with you. But he said, I have to, in the rep situation, make sure that if I don't need a lamp, if I think I can get by without that lamp, I don't use it. Because that's one more lamp 
for possibly an emergency later in this particular show or another lamp or a position in the ceiling for the next show I have to light. He said, I, I, I don't want to make it look as though I can just pull the rabbits out of the hats because the next thing you know, uh, the director will get the bit between their teeth and be saying, well, last time we did that scene, it was this perfect light you had. Well, where's the perfect light for this one kind of thing? And I thought, now that was an interesting lesson because there's a case where uh, somebody who was new to the game wouldn't learn that. That that it, Well, it's it, actually it's funny because it's directing. Directing always wants to save a space, save an area, save uh, a, a position on the stage. Because if you keep using and using and using, everything gets very mundane. But for that special moment, find that special. So similarly with the lighting, you want to be able to make sure you are saving things and you're not sort of like, just whizzing through and making it look like it's a walk in the park because you've done a lot of homework and you've tried to evaluate and you have got some things covered, but some things you may not. And so as soon as you start apparently being able to always get it right, uh, you've left yourself open to, in effect, a, a very difficult situation because the director will be on your back in five seconds for every little thing. Uh, that's great. Uh, Susan did not want me to let you off the hook about <laughs> your commitment, uh, whether conscious or not, to um, hire assistants and train a few, a ne the next generation mm. of lighting designers, many of which are women. Yeah. Uh, Louise Gino, can we list Louise Gino, Elizabeth uh, Asselstein, who I saw Elizabeth last Asselstein, yeah. um, Bonnie Beecher was one of my assistants, yeah. um, Leslie Wilkinson right. was an assistant, um, let's see, more recently, uh, uh, just trying to think, um, there was somebody else in the back of my, oh, um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name, but she, she was actually an assistant at Stratford and, and then got her degree at went on and is now teaching at um, uh, Kingston, I think it is. At um, I can't think of her name. She was a graduate originally from UVic. <laughs> Should remember her name. So, sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, there's many. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, and uh, Sharon Reed is somebody who was with me coming down to uh, San Diego and at Stratford, and uh, she's teaching at um, U of T. So uh, yeah, uh, and and uh, and a, a, a lot of the guys also are, are people that I worked with, and and I think the point is that I I'm looking, I'm looking at interest, I'm looking at the passion, um, and I think that it's as I said earlier, it's critical that those people have a transition, where they can watch and they can uh, progressively participate. I mean, in my case. Um, uh, I, nowadays, uh, I, I will tend to always turn all the sort of the printing process over to an assistant. I mean, I will do the rough plot and then say, okay, off you go, because I don't necessarily take the time on that. But also, uh, I haven't learned all of that the way probably many of them have done now at the sort of the training point. Uh, but I think that the idea of of literally being able to not be in the driver's seat but to see just how complex the process, i.e. dealing with the people, I and mean, it can be, I mean, dealing with the director, it can be dealing with the, uh, the fellow creative team, it can be dealing with the stage crew, 
um, you know, right through the whole spectrum or a production manager who's on to you always about can you save some more time? Can you save that kind of it, it's it's seeing that being handled through an experienced um sort of hand at it as opposed to being in that situation cold and having to sort of suddenly go, Oh my God, now you know, if if I if I fight this I may never get another job, all that kind of thing. But the 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 idea that I mean we ultimately we are in it together, guys. And so Co- uh, collaborative solutions, uh, give and take, all those things. And it's knowing finally when to em- employ uh, whatever the, the, the technique, the, uh, the generosity, the whatever that's needed, uh, as opposed to the, the idea of sort of flying blind into tricky situations and crashing and burning. I mean, the, the most common thing I feel is that because you're so eager to get a job or you to do a particular show or whatever it has to be, um, you may unwittingly or possibly even wittingly overstep where you are. And that can be fatal because we have a very short memory operating around us in this business. And if somebody kind of tanks on something, it's often like a, a really difficult job to get sort of back on the bicycle and keep riding. Uh, and if you've watched somebody who's had you know 15, 20 years experience in that same situation, you go, aha, okay, I know at least one way you know, not to exceed myself, not to whatever, overstep certain boundaries and stuff, then uh, I have a much better chance at a career. But if it's sort of walking into brick walls and and trying to bounce off and not doing it or not doing it well, uh, that there's unfortunately there's a lot of people out there trying to get that same position. So it's called you know learn in a situation where you're not the one that's really under the pressure. Yeah, and I th- I mean we could go into all kinds of things about this whole business of of not trying to sort of oversell your idea mm-hmm. uh, because that is something that I think uh, younger designers often go, oh, I've got this great idea, I'm going mm-hmm. to hang on to it. And and the point is to know, you know, either, A, when to introduce that mm-hmm. uh, as a viable alternative or whatever, or equally when to abandon ship with that and, and mm-hmm. go with the flow. Because it's um, it's an area that I think younger people may, in their what would you call it, over-enthusiasm and uh, uh, over-attempting to kind of show just how with it and connected they are, uh, you will get a situation where uh, the answer is, sorry, sorry, this is where you actually join the join the group, as it were. Because it, it's, um, it's, it's a tricky thing that you often, you, you come in with, a, and I've done this, I mean, I've come in with a, like a, what I think is a really great idea, uh, but I'm always very cautious. I, I sort of feel, you know, test the water, feel of other people. How how are they looking at this? Is this are they sharing perhaps my concern with something? Uh, if so, I put forward an idea. If if the idea um, that is sort of circulating is obviously very sound and very workable, uh, I don't necessarily want to rock the boat, um, but. I, again, I say that the, the the greatest danger I think is to overstep yourself 
um, and try to what I would call oversell yourself. Oh, I, yeah, I can do a piece of cake because it's very hard to pull yourself out of the hole if you've been counted on to produce something. And guess what? It isn't going to work as well as you thought it would or you can't get the part or the whatever or the board programmer can't seem to make it happen. Um, so I think it's it's that, that business of, of taking steps, taking steps, taking steps, not trying to race up the ladder. Because I always say that you know if you suddenly find yourself at the top of the stairs, it's a long way to tumble. Yes. If if you've run out of gas or you've run out of ideas, you've run out of something. So uh, yeah, I always agree to um, what's the phrase? Under promise and over deliver. Yeah, yeah. Ex- well, exactly because. And this is the this is the ultimate problem with our business that we're in this world that is totally ephemeral, and when I say unpredictable, you can't you can't say, as say Sue with her costume design or something, this is what I'm going to try to do. Unless you're a very good uh, you know quick sketch artist or painter or something, it's very hard. Or or even I mean I I often like to find an illustration or a picture or whatever. Um, that suggests what I think we should be shooting for if I've got a director who's having trouble kind of visualizing because some directors do have trouble visualizing. Um, And I always remember uh, my friend Latvi Mansura used to always say, where's your impending doom circuit? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, And, you know, you can even introduce a humorous aspect to uh, the way you're trying to, uh, you know, converse or, or get on the same uh, wavelength, as it were, but uh, it it has to happen, as you're saying. You can't sort of go off on a tangent and then hope that that everybody will cheer, or alternatively, that you can crawl back without being spotted. <laughs> it's it's tricky. Uh, all right, that's great. So I think that's uh, I think that's a great place to end, and I think that you've shown that uh, a commitment to the future is something that's been part of your practice for the last 35 years, 40 years, uh, and you've done it while building an extraordinary career. So thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. That was lighting designer Michael Whitfield talking to me from his home on Salt Spring Island in 2019. Next time, well, I have no idea yet. Stay tuned for another great Canadian theatre designer. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and show the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the TitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash the Title Block Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the TitleBlock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you hit the splat key and turn the cassette over to side B to record act two as you yell, tracking backup? What the heck's a tracking backup? I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the title block. And instructors who are rewriting, uh, rewriting, rewriting, huh?